This is a Podfire production. Hi, I'm Ryan and welcome to the New Nirvana podcast, where we dive into everything to do with mental health and well-being. Anything that can improve your life, we're here to talk about. All right, welcome to this week's episode of New Nirvana. This week I've got Tristan Warren on the episode. Welcome, Tristan. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, I've only met Tristan today, um, so I'm looking forward to, to talking to you. So Tristan is a clinical psychologist. Uh, he's got a few bits of paper. Do you just want to quickly rattle off them bits of paper because I forget what you're talk- what, what they were? Oh, yeah, we've got standard BSc in psychology and honours and a couple of masters in addictive behaviour clinical psychology or from Liverpool University in the UK. Yeah, nice. So I was just going to say that. So you grew up in Liverpool, if you can't uh, pick that accent yeah. for people that uh, they don't know. So yeah, Liverpool, um, so you were born there? Yeah, I was born, so um, I'm in my 50s now. I'm not going to reveal the, the precise... 49, 49. Yeah, something like 49. <laughs> um, but yeah, the background's really quite interesting. Um, come from Housing Commission. So it wasn't a privileged upbringing, but I was fortunate enough to have some really lovely people around me, my mum and my her parents, who unfortunately have passed away now. But as much as it was quite rough and ready, there was also a lot of love and support and, and safety and nurturing and encouragement to, to further my education, which has served me really well in the long run. You know, I was fortunate to have that support going forward. Yeah, cool. So I don't know much about Liverpool at all. So, um, yeah, what was it like growing up in in Liverpool? Okay, not to paint too too negative a picture, but sort of I grew up through the seventies and the eighties, and then um, Liverpool was very very deprived area of the north of England, whether it be Liverpool and Manchester and Newcastle. Um, lots of unemployment through the seventies and. Um, Dockland area, Liverpool was the, the biggest dockland in the world at one point, um, until the 50s, sea level globally was measured in the salt dock out of Liverpool, so yeah, it was a, um, a cornerstone in terms of the growth of England, and then through the 70s, the, the docks went to rack and ruin, basically, and high unemployment, um, Liverpool became a freeport in then was um, an avenue into to drug dealing into Europe. So there was a lot of spillover. Liverpool had a huge heroin problem through the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s. So you can imagine the social impact of that. Lots of aggression and frustration, people unemployed without meaning and purpose. And mm. so the consequences of, of which were, were pretty dire, you know. A lot of people suffered and there wasn't a great deal of money around and, and Liverpool gained a reputation of be, for being a pretty tough city and, um, yeah, not, not many prospects. Fortunately, sort of through the 90s, it reinvented itself um, and now there's lots of IT and lots of um, medical sort of uh, advancements through the university, which has got a great reputation, has come back into vogue. And I was fortunate enough to, to, to go to the university, which is a red brick university quite up there in terms of, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Liverpool, which, but as I say, during my childhood, it was, it was pretty rough and ready grinding. Yeah, so paint us a bit of a picture of, like, you um, growing up in that area. Did you 
uh, firsthand, were you, did you go down a path of like the drugs and the violence or anything like that personally or, yeah. or like family members or? Well, yeah, there was, yeah, it was sort of, you know, hit first and, and, and discussed second. That's, that's sort of how, how it was rough and ready, you know, and sort of street life, if you like. And without giving too much away, I've got a history of, I could have gone down a particular avenue again just to, to reinforce I was so fortunate I had some lovely people around me lots of guys I, I grew up with are either dead um, addicted or in jail and I could see that for myself at one point again you know I was, I was guided very positively to, to get tertiary education and, and follow our passion um, the psychology comes about so I was very pro Liverpool because it was such a working class city that initially in sort of high school, I wasn't really that focused. Psychology wasn't on the curriculum. And did you have, was there a moment in time that you can think of that you're clicked in? Yeah. That you're like, I'm going to do this. And what led to that point? Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if, the, if our audience know that much about Freud and Jung and Adler. So Sigmund Freud, people will have heard of, spoke about um, co-creation and sexual um, attraction. And he had two students. So Freud, in light of, he's not that popular. However, in light of genetics, lots of the things that he, he was quite out there make sense. And I think it's retrospectively, people are beginning to recognize some of the things he touched upon great that's hmm. by the by he had two pupils a guy called alfred adler who said it was all about power control manipulation and a guy called carl gustav jung who speaks about a collective unconscious that we're all connected hmm. and which is great stuff um and i'm a big jungian now jung said and this is to answer your question that was a bit convoluted ryan but said i have traveled to many places and i have seen many things but in my opinion liverpool is the center of the universe right so for me well. <laughs> for me as a young guy i took that as an ego thing that mm. we were just great people from liverpool and it was quite downtrodden so any boost i could give the city i, I looked for what he actually was speaking about was liverpool's dockland being um point on the Eden line between the east border of America, Boston, New York, England, basically Liverpool, and um, the west coast of Africa between trade and, and I have to say, you know, there was slave trade, um, but trade and being part of the Industrial Revolution being the major port in the world, that's what Jung was talking about. I misinterpreted it, mm. that Liverpool's just a great city. How Liverpool. often does that happen? But we hear something and we put that through our own filters yeah, and then right, we yeah. you know, internalise that to be completely missing the point. Yeah. And uh, you spoke about Sigmund Freud and him being quite out there and stuff like that. But to be honest, from what I've seen, all the people that have made dramatic changes in the world have at one point were considered crazy, at one point were considered out there and... And, you know, because we have got a certain baseline of what we think is normal, but 
Uh, it's them critical thinkers and the people that go out there and put themselves out there. And to challenge the boundaries. Yeah, and they might not all be always be right. So sometimes he was wrong, but That's it's right. the it's the it's the path that he grooved. Um, I suppose by being out there, and yeah, he was wrong sometimes, but then he was right. And I think sometimes for our listeners, um, you are going to be wrong sometimes, and that's okay. It's the it's the impact that you make, and to have you the courage and the the, um, the conviction to go out there and and to try and make that change, and don't just follow the herd because that's what we've always done. Because right. if we did that, then where would we be as a society, right? We wouldn't we would never grow, or we would never go anywhere. So, yeah. I think I just before we move on from Freud, I think he was ahead of his time. I know some of his stuff is controversial and and maybe outdated now, but, you know, he had lots of conviction and he stuck by his word, which I respect. And mm. uh, as you've rightly pointed out, Ryan, it, not all of it's um, spot on, not all of it makes sense for people. And again, I think he was a, bit, a little bit ahead of his time. But then I been a catalyst for so many people in terms of challenging different ideas mm. and you know societal beliefs and yeah I, I think you need that that courage to, to state your own case and, uh, and project how you perceive the world and, yeah and he did that without fail. yeah cool so uh, I, th- uh, I know I asked this before but I didn't think I got the answer um, that I was looking for so I might ask it again yeah. so did you have like that moment? Because oh, I know for me, I had a moment where, you know, I mean, I was ready to to check out of this world, you know, and mm-hmm. I just had that click of, okay, I'm going to now do this. Did you have like that well, defining the, moment where it was like, the, okay, the quote about Liverpool being the centre of the universe is on a, pla- a plaque in um, Cavern Walks where the Beatles come from. That's where I saw that quote, and that was the trigger point in yep. terms of, okay, I like what this guy's saying about the city. Who is he? And I did my research and started reading stuff about um, d- dreams, memories, and reflections was the first Jungian book I read, and and that really intrigued me. And, mm. and that was so. What age? Cycle. What age was this? Seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. And you know, I was sort of um, a bit yeah uncertain about which way I was going to go, and then that really resonated with me. And, and so I just kept began to dig deeper and dig, dig deeper. And then I thought, right, I'd want to pursue this as a profession. And again, the university has a really good, great psychology department. So again, another little bit of fortune, mm. you know, serendipity. That yeah, I like to call it grace, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, yeah I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's funny when, um, when you're ready to make a change or ready to go in a direction... Um, life or the universe will, will, yeah, something will show up, and you got to like really take that that omen or whatever you want to call it to, yeah. um, to follow whatever that is, and to have the faith that it's going to work out because that's and that that's really lovely, Ryan, and that fits into sort of my approach to psychology that if you're not in good mental health, then you miss those those that serendipitous moments, you mm. know, and by having that blunted effect emotionally, you miss those triggers and those cues that maybe will help you move forward, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's been very popularised now, like the law of attraction, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that whole depends on what state, what you're thinking about will then draw into your um, consciousness or, or draw into your um, 
your world of, of what it is that you're putting out there. So it's very important for us to look after our mental health and put us in a state where we do catch the we are receptive and we're receptive to, to, to the those things. Signs. Yeah, hundred percent. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from from adversity comes something great, you know. And yeah, the trigger from young was a big thing, and I still I'm still a huge junkie in in terms of. He coined the phrase of collective unconscious, and I think mm, I wrote that one down because I want to touch on that with you. I thought that was cool. That yeah, it's great, and you know, people often ask about the universe, and and you know, the, the, there's there's lots of stuff about the secrets of movie or a book about what you put out there comes back. Mm. Um, or I, I'm really very comfortable with people's different belief systems, but for me. The fact that we go through, you know, life and loss and love, and I, I like to believe that there's there's a connection there, and Jung coined that to be a collective unconscious just by being human and going mm. through those emotions of love and and loss and grief and um, difficulties and, and and great times in our lives. That is the connection between us humans and that collective unconscious needs to be addressed and, and we need to, to drive that because that's the connection for me between everybody yeah and i like that and i i like to bring people onto the podcast that have been through adversity in their life because it then the listeners out there that are going through similar things or whatever because a lot of times we get stuck in our head right when we're going through something we're like this only happens to me or, you know I mean? Like, why is anyone else not going through this type of stuff? But, but they are. But they are, that's right. Yeah. And I remember I went to a, a Tony Robbins event once. Yeah, um, and, yeah, I was there and we were talking and he was like, oh, let's everyone stand up, right? And, you know, you basically got to say what your biggest fear is or what it is, you know? And mm -hmm. nine out of ten people were like, I'm not enough or I'm not, you know what I mean? And I just found it really interesting that we've all got that kind of, that side of ourselves, that um, that negative thinking of oh, I'm not enough or I'm not good enough, or and it just goes to show that while a lot of us think that we sometimes we think we're the only ones that feel that way or think that way, but uh, everyone's got that um, that rumination or that or that negative thinking about themselves, and that's something that I like to try and work on is to work on that that positive self talk and work on. You know what it is that you're saying to yourself every day because you know seventy percent of the conversations you have is between you and you, right? Yeah. So, if that's the case, then you know would you talk to your best friend or anyone on the street the way that you're talking to yourself right now? Yeah. And if you wouldn't, then why? You know, I mean, why well, are you talking to yourself? You know, that's that's come to the fore recently. I mean, Jordan Peterson touches on that. One of his twelve rules for life um, is about treating yourself as though you were looking after somebody who was struggling. Mm. And I like that you touched on that self-communication, Ryan, because it's hugely important, and, and we'll look further on at, at neuroplasticity. But that, um, that that conversation that one has with oneself, we tend to be awfully hard on, a, mm. on the individual. And I like that sort of approach that you should relate to yourself as though you're caring for yourself. And... Uh, and that individual is fragile, and I think we're we're all a little guilty of, of being too hard with ourselves. Mm. You know? And there's a really cool um, 
a technique, or if you want to call it a technique, whereas if you're going, if you did something, what you classify as being wrong, or you know, I mean, you feel like some shame or guilt about it, mm-hmm. like you know, go close your eyes, picture yourself as like a five year old kid or whatever, and then what would you then tell that kid if they'd done that thing that you'd done? Like, how would you then approach them and talk to them? You would be very loving and nurturing, and that's okay, like you know, what I mean, you. But we don't do that to ourselves, right? But we should be. So that's a really powerful technique that I've learned is, you know, go back to how you'd treat a child if they did that same thing and, you know, talk to yourself in, in that type of manner instead of the manner that we, that we do. I approach uh, social train, educate my clients to, to think in those terms um, and to be more compassionate with yourself, mm. you know, and, and we talk about passion and Part of it's passion. I like that drive. I like for people to push themselves, but I think we sort of neglect that compassion side and that empathy side, particularly when we relate mm. to ourselves. So it's a lovely point. Yeah. So um, this is like the million dollar question. Uh, in your opinion, why do you think that is? Why do you think that we generally go straight to the the negative and beat ourselves down? And, and what what is it? that is happening or what is it from our past or is it the collective consciousness because that's what the, that's what we've always done is that why we kind of do that or what's your opinion on that i, th- I think some of the values of, of society about and and the way we're we're advertised to oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah is that better um the way we're sort of we re- relate to society i think there's that um almost hard edge in terms of um, having to achieve and somehow being lacking if you don't have what society deems to be a successful life mm. uh, and then the, the individual feels as though something is lacking and they get t- caught in that negative mindset and that automatic negative thought loop that I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy because I don't have A, B and C um, and the whole advertising industry is driven by, um, you know, more and more and more. Mm. And if you don't have this, then you won't feel this, you're or you, yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And basically, you know, if we, if we get into psychology, that's about social comparison, whereby you know one naturally compares oneself with with others. And I think advertising and, and consumerism plays on that 100%. very negatively. Mm. Um, and as you've rightly pointed out, that somehow if you don't have such and such, then you're not worthy or you're lacking. And and, and that's part of the problem with advertising and consumerism, that it's, it never stops. It's more and more. And so when you do attain whatever you wanted, we get bored of that, you know? you go and buy the Porsche or you go and buy this or you have the best looking partner or you know you have X amount of dollars in the bank and somehow that's going to 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 make your life fulfilled uh, mm. and, and, and it's a bottomless pit but isn't it it never stops mm. you know? and, and it's just it's a self-serving sort of industry whereby it's never enough yeah so I've got a good mate of mine um, he's actually come on this podcast and he's uh, really good at marketing right and 
and he'll openly admit like my job is to try and find and tell people that they aren't enough until and the way to make them feel enough is to have whatever it is that he's selling and so you know advertising is all about trying to make you feel like you're not enough and we do that enough already so we don't need the bombardment every day like right now you you pick up your phone advertise we've we've got advertising everywhere you look it's there you know what i mean it's always telling you um that you need this product to then feel this certain way but what happens when we buy that product we don't get the feeling that they promised right yeah and i guess my other um thought around that is there's a lot of talk about parenting and way to parenting and um you know a lot of people say that native self-talk is can come from like parents from you know always trying to tell you you know i mean what to do or you know i mean and they're not doing it on purpose. They're not trying to feel you're not enough, but they're just trying to help you grow as a human. But they can tend to do that in a way that um, can seem like to a child that, you know, I mean, you, you, you need to do this or you need to do that to, to, to be more to be, you know what I mean? So uh, parents inadvertently or, you know, not meaning to are putting that into kids' that's heads. And right. And as you know, I'm sure you know, that's when, you know, we develop our, our subconscious rise the first six years that's when we've got no filter so everything goes straight in uh so it's very important for any parents out there to really to be able to control your emotional state and control the way that you're speaking because then that will then reflect into the child yeah Yeah. definitely and and as you've rightly pointed out i I think no parent intends to 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 undermine the child and it always comes from a decent place but Mm. when they're then shaped by society and you touched on you know um give me the individual till the six or seven or in child psychology sort of look at 10 or 11 those years are so very important Mm. and if we set the individual up negatively and to be hard and self-deprecating um in those formative years then it's difficult then to go back and undo that negative mm. impact or that transference we call it whereby the, the, the parent projects onto a child um one of the lines is you know give me the, the individual till they're seven and i'll give the give you the adult mm. so i like the fact that you've raised that because those years are so and again it's not about um running down parents they're all coming Right no, and, and that's and why and I where do their beliefs come mm. and their value systems and generational differences. You know, one of the things in therapy I look at is, you know, do we do we still do those beliefs and those values still hold true? You know, because you know I can I can go back. It's only what sixty years um, post World War. You know, I, I'm. I don't want to digress too much, but there was a whole generation of males who came back, you know, at the end of the Second World War in 45, they were traumatised with PTSD. Now we're more conscious of, of what's going on for individuals who've been in conflict. However, back 60-odd years ago, um, the, those in, those blokes basically were sort of kicked onto city street and told to just cope with life mm. having been through all this trauma and they then they self-medicated lots of them um they were angry they were traumatized they were depressed and there wasn't the support there and then they had a generation of children 
who were then shaped by their trauma, mm. basically. And now we're sort of a couple of generations further down and people are more cognizant about mental health and mental well-being. And, you know, without, without making it a, a gender issue, guys particularly, you know, are sort of have been drilled, educated, not to really reach out and somehow that that was a weakness mm. and consequently that was bottled up and and the spillover was such that you know it was passed on to the next generation and i think we are now beginning to try and break that mold i think yeah 100 you know, that's happening but i think to have some insight as to, to why that's come about is, is very important you know mm. Yeah, I, I know um, with, like, with my parents, so my dad was not someone that really talked about his feelings or anything like that, and you know, I, I can remember never, ever seeing my dad, like, emotional or anything, like, when I was younger, and, yeah, I suppose as a child, you're a sponge, right, you take that in, you're like, well, that's that's how you deal with stuff. Um, yeah, and, you know, fast forward to now, like, and my dad's a completely different person, like, he's definitely more in touch with his emotions and stuff now and but i never seen that right as a kid and whether that was on purpose from him or not i'm not too sure but yeah i think it um well he probably inherited that from his and that's the thing and and, and you're talking about attachment theory at the moment that you know that's the concept within psychology yeah when you're young you mimic you copy and you know if the, the, the individual you're sort of trying to learn from has struggled or has been damaged from from their childhood or, or their parents' experience in life, then it just perpetuates. And, and I think it's on us now to sort of break that cycle. And, and it is happening. And I think, you know, men are, are encouraged to be um, emotionally intelligent. You know, I mm. think that that's, that's great. And to express what's going on for them, whereas probably my grandfather's generation were, were told to basically, you know, suck it up and and, and that's how it is and, and harden up, you know, that's that's what happens, which can be very detrimental for, mm. for, for individuals. And I think it's important, it's funny because I just listened to a book this morning uh, called Letting Go from David Hawkins, I don't know if you know yeah. David Hawkins, yeah. and uh, he talks about this and when we talk about opening up about emotions and talking though that doesn't mean that we go around expressing everything and and form that big mentality and oh poor me poor me that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about opening up it's you know uh, i think that's you some people go too far the other way then they try and open up about everything but then they turn that into constant talking about their issues and constant talking about and that's not really helping Mm. anyone right most the pendulum swung too Mm, far yeah yeah and you know that just perpetuates into more victim mentality and and oh poor me because then they yeah they they bottle up for so long and then when they start they kind of then can't stop stop. um and like that might be great for the first part to just let it all out that's great but then to then to move on as well well and to not let that hold you back and not let that be your your story now is well poor me i've been through all this and uh, that's, that's the end my narrative that's now, the yeah, yeah right stuck there yeah so we need to try and be um aware and conscious of of that so yeah just yeah don't swing too far in the other direction 
And you brought up attachment too. So if I'm writing stuff down, I'm trying to remind myself to bring stuff up. <laughs> yeah, so I, we, I brought uh, a good friend of mine, Angelique Joy, and she's really big on attachment too. And I've had to look into a lot of attachment stuff through my upbringing and stuff like that. And I think um, when you touched on like a child or, you know, it takes on and then that was because their parents and then their parents. And I know when I brought up with my mum a few years ago, I sat her down and said, look, this is what I was feeling as a child from you and this is what sort of, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I, wasn't, I wasn't saying it as uh, having a go at her. I was saying it as, and and her, she got real defensive straight away. Well, well you, you got nothing like what I got, you know what I mean? Like that's, you know what I mean? And then I was like, well, I'm not talking about what you got. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about what would happen between us. And, you know what I mean? Um, I know she went through stuff and all that, and it was, we all do, but it's our job as an individual to break them chains, that's to not right. then put it on to the next generation. So for a big driver of me to try and change who I am is because I don't want to then put that on to the next person. And if you do go... And want to speak to your parents about it and stuff, and, and just be well aware that you know they are probably feeling guilty as well for it. But our human nature is to get defensive and and you know try and right. just spread the blame. And and if that happens, then you know I had the compassion to go. I understand, mum, and I'm not blaming you. And you know to try and because um, that might be a conversation like that helped me get it off my chest and rah, rah. But at the same time, it, I suppose it it helps them. To then, I suppose, accept that that's what happened, but then they can then start their journey on on you know working through because they'll feel guilt from that, right? They'll right. feel pain from that, and um, so yeah, having them tough conversations is something that I like promoting. Is you know is having them tough conversations because generally two people heal from it. It's not just the person that's. Well, I think you've, you've touched on a couple of great points there, Ryan, about people's fear about just moves sort of lifting the lifting the lid um in terms of opening a can of worms mm. you don't want and then the blame game so people then feel that you're pointing a finger and somehow you're projecting onto your parents for all your faults yeah and that's and not and what that's it's about what you're doing no and, and what's the, what's the age-old saying about pointing at someone yeah, you got three, three fingers, fingers pointing back at yourself back <laughs> yeah. and we live in a culture Mm. And, you know, that's a societal thing. It's not just about the child and the parent. Um, but, yeah, in, in terms of attachment theory, we do. We mimic. That's what children do. They, they sort of relate to a parent or an uncle or an aunt or whomever it is, a close family member, and they say, okay, well, I, I like the way you are and who you are, and then they mimic that behaviour. Mm. But if, if everyone's traumatised around them, that's just trauma perpetuates itself. Yeah, a lot of times it, you either copy or it's your body using its self-defense mechanisms to, to cope with, because they don't have mm -hmm. the, the, the tools and strategies to cope with, you know, with the chaotic parents, and then they learn a strategy that may have helped them at the time, mm -hmm. but when we try and use them same coping mechanisms now, it doesn't work, apply. right? But we don't know any better because that's in the first six, or when you're developing that you know and it's very hard to i'm not going to say it's very hard it's um you know, i don't like using that word but it's yeah it is something that you know takes a bit of time and something you have create some awareness around 
and also to challenge the belief systems and the values that your parents had. Is that somehow, does the individual see that as, as disrespectful? And back to opening the can of worms, the people are frightened, or somehow it's, um, it's an insult to challenge that belief system, which mightn't be, you know, it mightn't be pertinent for, for the here and now. It might be beliefs are outdated. One of the things I work on is sort of the challenging of beliefs, but that can, that can trigger lots of fear mm. and anxiety that, okay, well, if I, I question everything that I've learned, where does that then leave me? Yeah, who am I? What? Who am I? Yeah, the whole identity. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And so people will shy away from that out of they don't want to disrespect the parents or the grandparents, and and there's a lot of fear and anxiety about like, well, if I try and deconstruct my my beliefs and my values, where then does that leave me? So that of the devil, you know. Me. Yeah, yeah, the identity crisis. Stay, yeah, people just stick with. You it's know, easier. It's, it's easier to just stay where you are, right? Point, mate. It's easier just to continue rather than to put the work in and challenge and, uh, and develop your own set of mm. beliefs. Yeah, and so I was um, fortunate enough to do a lot of work around like framing and stuff as well. So I tried to deliver it in a way that it was coming from love. It wasn't coming from I'm attacking you. And uh, because I really thought about how I was going to bring this up, you know what I mean? Sure. And because I brought it up in that way, if I would have brought it up any other way, it just would have been like chaos, chaos. right? But then I noticed she did swing from, ah, uh, you know, I'm sorry, to then, oh, it's not my fault, to then. So she kind of like teetered on both things, you know what I mean, which was huge for my mum because I know like that would be very difficult for her. So if you are looking to have any difficult conversation with anyone um you know i mean start with you know framing it in a way you're doing it at a love not of attack That's because right. people automatically get defensive people automatically put that shield up and go well you're attacking me so i need to attack you now you know and i mean defenses go up and the walls go up and well i think you hit the nail on the head in terms of both parties um benefit and and grow and develop from it and ultimately you're moving on to new ground in terms of that communication, those channels being open, mm. and even if it is a little difficult, the growth for both parties is, is worth mm. it. You know? And just know that if you do have a tough conversation with mm. someone, doesn't matter with your parents or whatever, mm. if they do come, if you do it correctly and do it from a place of love, even if they do go straight to defensiveness, you know that when they walk away from that, okay. they would... They will reflect on it and they will realise, you know what I mean? So even at the time it may seem like, well, that was a waste of time, I guarantee you it wasn't. I guarantee you they'll walk Stop away and they will reflect on that and they'll go, hang on a minute. And they even if they don't come back and say anything to you, you know that you've done the best that you can with what you did and you you, know, you did it for the right reason so you don't have any um, anxiety or, or guilt around it because, you know, you didn't just go in there attacking or whatever. So um, yeah, I think the approach is very important and how you frame it. Um, and we'll touch on reframes and, and belief systems a little bit later, hopefully. But um, the reframe is, is massive. And that's a cornerstone of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I, I lean on quite heavily. Yeah, um, yeah. But we'll touch on that further down the line, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, I know you talked about before, um, like trials and tribulations and stuff that 
sort of is very difficult and a lot of us go straight to you know why me and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i've tried to train my thinking and my belief when something like this comes up is i ask myself a few simple questions like you know what is this trying to teach me you know what am i going to benefit from this like what what am i learning you know and what character am i building from this challenge that i can then go forward and i i use this at i've done a few talks at schools and stuff and I like to say to the kids, life is like a video game, right? You got level one, easy, right? Everyone goes through level one, like this is so easy. And that's like when you're a little kid, right? Yep. And what happens in level two? There might be one little obstacle. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna try and navigate this obstacle. And then when you learn the skill it is to then do the obstacle, then okay, you go to the next level. And then so life is very similar. You come up to a challenge, and instead of going, oh, poor me, you go, oh, what am I gonna? What skill I need to learn to get over this thing? And then, you know, you may come up to, like, the boss of that level and then this is a hard, something hits you hard, right? You're like, shit. Instead of going back to, oh, that poor me, you know, okay, if I can now do this. And kids will sit there all day and play that video game and try and beat that one level all day and they don't care if they fail 100 million, you know. But in life, when something comes up, they don't have, I mean, so I think if you think of it as a way of growing and learning and getting to the next, to level up in life and... I, I think that really resonated with the kids and I love bringing that one up. And that Excellent stuff, you know. And I think that's where where solutions lie with the children uh, and equipping them to deal with, with life's knocks. And mm. a big thing in today's society at the moment is resilience. I actually, I have a, I, I lean towards a different concept called anti-fragility. I don't know, Ryan, if you know about the... I have heard of that an, before. Anti-fragile. So yeah. This is about... So if you look at resilience, which is great, you know, and, and that's a great mindset if you to tough it out and be able to keep moving forward and you can bring in concepts like failing forward and you, you are going to be buffeted by life. You know, that's what's going to happen. And it's important that you, you learn from it. Um... But in terms of anti-fragile, how can you be better for having been through that adversity? Mm, that's powerful. And that's very powerful. If you can get into that, it's resilience is lovely. I like that approach. But we sort of white knuckle a little bit and just try and get through it and, mm. and not to break. My approach would be more to, to, to look back and, and draw from that how you've improved having been through that those difficulties or those traumas in life rather than as well as not rather than sorry yeah instead you, of just gritting it out and and, and gritting your teeth and which is great but then how can you draw down from that into thrive instead of survive is why has awesome it, why has it made you better mm. you know and i think when people go through their life's trials and tribulations which we all go through touching back on on a collective unconscious we all go through loss we all go through grief. We it's part of life, grief. right? That's, like, that's the part mm. of the human condition. However, can how can you learn? How has that improved who you are as a, a human being? And I think that that's the next step forward in terms of psychology and anti, anti-fragility is massive. You know? Yeah, yeah. I got, um, one of my favourite uh, people in the world is Dr. Martini mm-hmm. and the Martini method and... Yeah. I think it's absolutely brilliant is, you know, write down every positive thing that's happened from that experience. And if you do it enough through, you know, your neuroplasticity and uh-huh. your neural networks that 
you'll eventually get to a point where you'll see the equal amount of positives and negatives in any situation and then it neutralizes itself and you go well was it really a bad experience or was it you know i mean there's if there's equal amounts of positive and negative um i think that's really really powerful so i'll i guess i'll ask you now is there something a go-to technique or something that um that you predominantly would tell someone that is going through something that's quite traumatic okay i think we've touched on a couple of points in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy and the reframe and the challenge of is this true i think people if we, if we lose it use a basic example of i'm not worthy to be able to that's the cornerstone of, of cognitive behavioral therapy to challenge is that honest and true and and is it real for the individual you know maybe someone thinks they're they're not successful and and then to challenge that in terms of well you're successful at living you've still you've been living still here yeah. for, for 40 <laughs> years or 50 or whatever it yeah. is yeah yeah and the ability as you've rightly pointed out to, to see the positives and i i don't want to be too glib and cliche about the glass being half full or half mm. empty but i think philosophically and psychologically that that's a, a cornerstone to work on and, mm. and to challenge um but yeah, there are different techniques in terms of um, back to cognitive behavioral therapy or ants, we call them automatic negative thinking. And you touched on a concept called neuroplasticity that you, you wire neurons that fire together, wire together. And so you're creating particular pathways within your own psychology. And, you know, you will have heard you are what you eat now. You are what you do now. You are what you think. And if that thought process is constantly negative, mm. a good, maybe not a metaphor, but if you look at something like obsessive compulsive disorder and you have um, a checking component whereby you have to check the ovens off or the doors closed, or the lights are off, or you leave the house and you're not sure. That in that moment, that checking is is used as a distraction. OCD is an anxiety disorder, and the individual thinks by going through that ritual and that routine, they're reducing their anxiety or the checking or the hygiene is another big one they're going through the hand washing is a distraction from the anxiety but really what's happening is you're reinforcing those neural networks mm. and they're you're entrenching that cognitive pathway always and in the moment the individual thinks they, there's some relief but in actual fact what you're doing is reinforcing those connections yeah and reinforcing that automatic negative thinking yeah i've always seen ocd or people with ocd as trying to control to have that certainty in their life because there's so much uncertainty um so i for me if i talk to someone with ocd i'm like well where's the chaos in your life where's the where's there so much uncertainty that you're now trying to create certainty this is what i love about habits and routines if you create uh, a stable habit and you know i mean wake up go to the gym, you know, and, and positive habits, mm -hmm. then you've got that certainty already and then you may not need to get it through other means. You know what Most I mean? Most definitely, yeah. I mean, 
an interesting concept. We probably don't have time to look at it now. It is addiction a form of OCD? You know, that's that's a big concept in terms of that repetitive ritualistic behaviour. I think habituation mm. and addictive. Be- I think there are some very healthy addictive behaviours, and people would argue with me that any addiction is is negative. Um, I think I, we're I, creatures of habit. Mm, I, I agree with that to a certain extent. Like, I'd much rather you addicted to the gym as opposed to addicted to drugs, right? The thing about the addictive process is that if then, okay, so if we look at sort of exercise addiction, how are you if you get injured and you can't perform that exercise routine? Does that then somehow leave you more vulnerable because you're dependent on it? Yeah? Mm, and, and I think I've done that myself. 100%. Yeah, and so I, again, you know, the, any definitive answers no. specifically I think it's it's bespoke to the individual and, and how they are mindful you know that's a very tri- um, limbo concept um, I think that presentism in terms of being focused on how you're thinking and, we, and we'll explore that a little later but um, yeah you're right good habits and this is what we do when we get up and we, we drink our water and we go and do some exercise and then mm. we have some structure and balance in terms of we work through the day and then, you know, we socialise and have our interact and our family time and, and, and then our le- leisure time, you know, whether that be gaming you, you mentioned or... And that's okay as long as that's not the be-all and end-all mm. of, of your behaviour pattern. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, um, you touched on before about having good people in your life, which really helped. And I think that's so important. I think community is massive and something that we lack is that community, that connection, because we were so used to growing up in, in tribes and we had like parents and grandparents and we're so isolated today, especially like post-pandemic, you know, people working from home and, and not having that the right people around you. So I think that's really awesome. So... If you could explain, like, you know, the connection and, and having the right people, like, how much that changed, you know, your, your trajectory of your, of your life. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, um, sort of coming from quite a deprived area, I think there were lots of damaged individuals and you saw that, you know, the, their children then sort of adopted the same behaviour patterns or, or, or the sort of same trauma was it's generational trauma it was generational addiction it was generational unemployment or or sort of lack of meaning and purpose in the individual's life and you can see it being passed from from the adult to the child from the parent to the child um and i sort of attribute my ability to 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 get out in the world to to having a safe and nurturing loving environment with with the right motivation and the right encouragement too mm. but you know if, if the child sees the, the parent behaving uh, look at generational addiction you know we now know that it's huge you know the the, the, the adult um copes with their difficulties in life by uh, up through alcohol or drug abuse then that's the coping mechanism that the, the child inherits and this is how my mum or dad dealt with the particular way, uh, particular issues in a particular way, and then that's reinforced because that's what they do, then that's what I do. And I think, you, you know, 
it's a very pertinent point that you know for me um i had some cool people around me ryan and yeah there were lots of there was lots of dysfunction living on a housing estate however the, the primary um caregivers in my life were pretty cool and together and decent and they instill uh, mm. a, a nice set of values and beliefs uh, and that was monstrous so in terms of looking to to bring our children up in a healthy and positive manner i think that really needs to be addressed and um yeah anything sort of that's insightful or, or nurturing needs to be promoted yeah definitely yeah. i i've come across a lot of people that have been through a lot as children and they've got siblings that were obviously in the same situation and yet i find you know one of them really made the change and, and used that as a determination or motivation to then get out of it and you know and then you see the other one use that as a victim mentality to then keep going down that same path so one thing i haven't got a straight answer from anyone i don't know if I ever will so i'm going to ask you what do you think it is in that person that made that change like what is it that made them different to then go on a better path as opposed to to not like what what is it in a human that is there any sort of studies or any sort of evidence to say that a certain characteristic or a certain i don't do you understand what oh, i'm trying yeah, to okay so if you look at siblings their the communication from the parents they're different individuals at a particular time right so a big the big philosophical concepts which you will have heard of is about is it nurture or is it nature yeah now we've developed into a concept called epigenetics mm. so the environment is triggering your genes so it is both a physiological a genetic and an environmental mm. um, joe dispenza is doing a lot of great joe, work in joe that dispenza at the moment is brilliant stuff and epigenetics is fantastic so it it's not black and white and definitive that mm. you are genetically predispositioned to such and such although there's lots of research going on about alcoholism and identifying genes that predispose the individual to alcoholism mm. why is it that i could i can enjoy a drink and stop and mm. maybe somebody else can't stop and, and they there's can a stop. lot of um evidence with addiction i think gamma may talks about mm. and trauma like trauma I think you're seven thousand more times to, to have an addiction from from trauma, right. which is absolutely insane. When you think of that, that's absolutely a big numbers, Ryan. You know, they're really big numbers, and so I, I think it, it, it's it's bifold. I think that when you talk about siblings, particularly, is a very valid point. But maybe the the, the communication from the parent was different between the. the the five-year-old or the ten-year-old, yeah, and how that is then the message that's being projected is is processed by the individual, mm. and and I think that one size fits all is a problem within society. Oh, absolutely. You know? and, yeah, and I don't want to get too much into it. it's all individualistic because you know we are a collective and mm. we're a community you got to have that happy medium right yeah, you can't and, go and to and also the relationship with with other um important figures within the community and and within the family and how 
how that relationship happens and you know we touched on it you know it takes a takes a village to raise the kids you know and, mm. and we need that sense of unity that i think is being lost and that you know it's all about nuclear rather than extended families now and i think you know i, I read somewhere a couple of days ago that you know the individual in Western society will spend 17 years on their phone. So I don't want to. I don't want to be boohooing technology no. because we'd be lost without our phones. Yeah. Now. However, I think it's it's that the pendulum we spoke about earlier mm. that we've gone to an extreme, and, and the yeah, whole concept is to keep you flicking through your phone devices. And I'll be controversial here for you, Ryan, but. I, I love controversial. I, Let's I, go. I, I honestly <laughs> believe that within the next 10, 20 years, we will look back on this time and say, what were we doing giving our children these devices? No, I, I don't uh, think I that's think, controversial at all. Nate, I think that that's coming. Yeah. And I think that, uh, and you don't want to be doom and gloom and, uh, and it's ruining society, but it is. Yeah, I, I read something. Uh, I, I think I listened to it and it was someone talking and he he was adamant that he would not give a child under the age of six yeah. a device, like under no circumstances. Is, it, is that bad? Um, and I, I think you mentioned earlier about effort and the best things take effort and commitment and I think that people are so overwhelmed and we'll touch on post-COVID hopefully in a minute, but the TV and the 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 devices, the phones, are now rearing the kids mm. and the, the the parents. And this is not a criticism, although it could be deemed a criticism. Is that it's easy? It's easy to give the child mm. a distraction and keep them entertained, rather than and because people are time poor and, and they're stressed in themselves, mm. so they just press the button. The kid is entertained for multiple hours. Yeah. But what sort of input are, they, are we giving the children? Yeah, and then like so, this reinforces the the lack of um, community around like a family because if you're a struggling single mom with two jobs, like you don't have the energy to That's right. with the kids. Like so, you have to get like whereas back in you know when they had the community in like trials or whatever, like. If you had a tough day, you'd oh grandparents are there, everyone's there to look at, and then they can then have their part in it. So the grandparents or the community was the iPad or the phone. That was their way of getting away and having some time to themselves. And you know what I mean. Whereas now they don't have that, so the only way they can do it is using give the device. Uh, you know, and you can you can look at things like obesity and nutrition. And for people who are time poor or, or financially challenged, then fast food's easier. You know, I've mm. worked in deprived areas, Ryan, and, and tried to encourage individuals, whether it be the, the mother or the father, to try and get a decent nutritional balanced diet for the kids. But it's easier mm. for them to go to McDonald's 100%. because they're not in the right mindset to, to cook and go to the supermarket. And I've actually worked with people and, and taken them to, to the supermarket to buy because they might be living hand to mouth. Financially, there might be an issue. And what we've done is try and get the larder full of half decent food rather than the default setting to go to some fast food chains. I mean, you look at the demographics about 
about fast food and they're much, much more prevalent in deprived areas, mm. you know, and a dollar for a, a burger or whatever it is for a mum, as you rightly point out, who's stressed within themselves. They, they just want to do the right thing and give the kids something to eat because the kid is hungry. So the default setting is they go to, to you know, a fast food joint, whatever that be. Mm. Yeah? Then what happens is the child is nutritionally deprived. Yeah, The child then, we have a massive obesity problem globally. Whether, mm. whether you're here or the UK, it doesn't matter. Right? So then what happens? Then they develop dis- diseases. Medicine per se, and I'll be very controversial now, is based on a disease model. You look at something like diabetes, it's reversible. Yeah. Mm. Once people, once that pancreatic breakdown happens, then you've got people on insulin for life. Mm. Repeat business. We're very much on the same page about a lot of things like this. It's a disease model. It's not about curative. No. They want you to. The people who produce insulin. The people who produce antidepressants mm. want you to come back and repeat that script. They don't want you to move away from it. And I, I'm, I might get shot down for this because there is a time and place for meditation. I'm not, no, you won't. I'm not, wait, wait here. I, not, I, I, not, I won't do it, you know. However, think about what's happening. It's all about repeat business. And, yeah. and that's how... The, the, trillions and trillions of dollars and I, I was very shocked because i know when i went to i think we spoke about this before is when i went to a psychologist the first thing they said was here's a pill yeah. they didn't ask me what my sleep What's was like on? what yeah. was my diet like they didn't ask me about you know what i mean so i think nutrition and food is so under talked about and underrated when it comes to mental health it's just it's, it blows my my mind actually well, like people, well people will know of serotonin which is a neurotransmitter we won't get into um neurophysiology at the moment however most of your serotonin is actually produced in, in your gut. gut yeah and you know if, if that gut culture i mean it's not really my forte I, but I, I, I i'm interested and i've done a little bit of research me too yeah if, if that if that biodome isn't healthy and functional then the ramifications have been depression anxiety disorder mm. you know? anger it's um, it's kind of like the simple concept of a car like you put shit fuel in your car it's and you ex- blow up, yeah. well it's not going to run very right you know what i mean so why how are you expecting this which is way more complex to run you know smoothly yeah. and run sweetly if you're not putting the right fuel in there yeah. um so it, it is it's about and back to the anti-fragility i think that is a great concept it, it, it's eclectic you know you need there's a concept within psychology called Gestalt. Right, German guy spoke about how the separate parts create the whole. He said that the, the individual parts are different to the whole and how that's put together. So it's 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 diet, it's exercise, it's psychology, it's communication, it's acceptance moving forward, it's learning. You know, mm. there isn't what again. You, you can't just focus on one aspect. No, that's that collective consciousness part too. And I read something the other day and it really blew my mind. They're now saying that most studies that they've done around disease and all that, because they've pulled the cell out of the human body and tested it by itself, you're not going to get an accurate test because it's going to react different by itself as opposed to being... 
So they're saying most of their studies now, uh, they got to go back and start again because they're like, well, it's not going to react the same because it's in a different environment and it's not, it hasn't been affected by all the other cells around it. So, and I was like, wow, that's, uh, you know what I mean? It's well, I, I like the metaphor of the sports team. You know, if you look at something, I'm a soccer fan, but if you look at something like cricket, you, you have your bowlers, one aspect. You have your mm. batters, you have your fielders, you have your wicket. Do you think England, someone from England can talk about cricket, mate, or no? Oh, no, no I, I, I believe you have Mr. Adam Holly O'Connor, who's a good mate of mine, and yeah, so I, I try and veer away from cricket <laughs> and rugby, yeah. although I, I'm a big sports fan, Yeah. when it comes to sport, there is only one sport, and that's yeah. soccer, and yeah. as a huge Liverpool fan, I've been very... Oh, you called it soccer, not football, okay, well, you, well, you, I'm in you're Australia. now Aussie. <laughs> I, I learnt over years in being in the States, that yeah. rather than generate that confusion i'll sort of abdicate because it is football yeah but i will use the yeah the soccer term but yeah again you, you break that down then it's the goalkeeper the strikers the midfield the defense mm. you need all of those aspects uh, and it's a lovely metaphor for the, the individual definitely you know? how many teams have you seen on paper don't look that good but they gel that well that they beat everyone and so individually you got six stars on this side but they don't gel, and they, they can't even beat a side that has nowhere near the the talent. The, but the, they've got that cohesion and that synergy to work together to get to the goal, whatever it is. But, yeah. but, but that's the, the gestalt. I don't think I really explained that that well. But gestalt said the whole is other. He actually it's misquoted, but the, the popular quote is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. He actually didn't say that. He said. The whole is other than the sum of the parts, but it's how you put that together. BMW used it in a brilliant ad campaign 20 years ago and they had the wheels and the chassis and the, the cabin and the, the, the shell and then the engine and it was all laid out, you know, on the floor and then they put it together in the, in the completed vehicle. Brilliant ad campaign. But that, that was the concept that they were using. The, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and, and that's what you've touched on in terms of sporting metaphor that you you need you need the batters and the bowlers and it's different they have their role and i think if you can apply that to the individual then that's how you create a positive and healthy a, a, a meaningful life yeah know? and we haven't even touched on meaning what is the purpose i know that was sort victor of, frank yeah uh, so <laughs> if people know about man's search for Great so book. Anyone looking for a book, uh, I highly recommend that if book. I, if I give it a quick summary, yeah, very unfortunate. He was a psychiatrist, and this was in the Holocaust, and he was taken to Auschwitz with his wife and his children, and very sadly, tragically, they were, as soon as they arrived, they were sent to the gas chamber. But he didn't know that, and he conducted therapy in Auschwitz. Met amazing guy, uh, and some of the things he came to they're very significant about meaning and purpose and the will to live and what drives you know and I'm also very fascinated by where's the motivation you know we'll touch on hopefully about locus of control locus just meaning where is the location of control is that within you or is it predetermined by you know life's experience or, or, or the events that happen you know, um, and I think it's very important. I think a, a bit of both, but like epigenetics, 
path thing. Mm. Some of it, you know, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And, you know, we can touch on acceptance therapy. But, yeah, it's it's how you put it together. You know, it's there isn't one size fits all. It has to be for the individual and what's it. You know, some people are great at, at being disciplined with, with the physical exercise. Some people are great at nurturing the mind or, or you know, sort of that that knowledge and, and, and development, you know, of the brain. Um, and they might be great at that and reading and, and sourcing great forms of different sources of information. And, and another individual might be great at running marathons, you mm. know. But I think you need a blend. Of of different disciplines, different aspects of life, and it's how you. And that's one of the things I'm really passionate about. Is as an individual, Ryan, you put yourself together. You feed yourself. If you keep feeding yourself with with the negative, you know, if you keep, you know, you, you habitually input equals output, right? Brilliant, mate. Yeah, you know, and and I th- I, I honestly believe that it's tabula rasa blank canvas and I think it doesn't matter what age you are you you touched on it off off air just before about um you know how you how what you do you are you know you create yourself and you pursue those particular activities and that's what creates the individual you know mm. I sort of wave it there I've digressed a little bit sorry no that's okay I'll just write down because you've touched on it before about the individuality and how everyone has been through different experiences and it's very hard to give a one-size-fits-all. And I think a lot of programs and a lot of people that are out there trying to uh, do the right thing and try to help people, but I don't like this, oh, I've got a... Um, you know what I mean, I've got this program that's one size that fits all, and I, I, sometimes I think you need to dig a bit deeper and, and have a conversation with someone because when people come to me, like I do have a, a set core things that will help everyone, which mm-hmm. is great, but to deliver that to an individual, you kind of need to give it the context that suits that person through to you know whatever it is that they've uh, kind of been through. So it's kind of like I think with exercise, like you wouldn't go to – someone at the gym and go and give the same program to someone that's overweight to someone that's a marathon run to someone that's mm-hmm. you know what I mean like sure. it's it just not going to work I mean you need to tweak things and, and to make yes exercise as a whole is awesome that's the that's the program mm-hmm. but you need to be then to be able to you know dissect that, that for the individual yes hundred yeah. percent and age age comes <coughs> into it you know not young fellas like us surely <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or the, you know individuals find themselves you know maybe they've been traumatized and they haven't nurtured themselves and they haven't mm. you know and we touched on that about deprived areas and nutrition and dietary you know input um so you're quite right the exercise regime for that individual who might be carrying too much weight or hasn't trained for a long time or injuries got, or, or anything injuries yeah. is going to be difficult or the time poor you know yeah definitely compared to the marathon runner or the elite athlete, it's different. I, I, but I also think, I think you can offer up um, particular strategies that that will help almost everybody. Yeah, um, yeah. But I also think, you know, 
that support and that collective and, and community is is massive. You know, I should, for me, I'd rather train with a buddy or be in that environment. I'm not that self-disciplined at times, and mm. so actually being out there on my own, going for a run or whatever it is, you know, I, but I can recognise that maybe that is a bit not a weakness, but I need to approach that differently. Yeah, you know, for me, that community and having a banter and a laugh and and, and humour is yeah, massive. especially when you're starting off with something too. You know what I mean? Like, mm. um, if you're well trained at anything, you can then go and do it by yourself. But at the start, when you're trying to make the changes and become whatever it is, like, you need that community, right? You need that sort of a bit of a push, and yeah. until you're what you know weakness or something you need help with, then can become a strength, and then you don't need that help before yeah. um which is well you know the, the Nietzsche comment isn't it what doesn't kill you makes you strong yeah and, um, yeah so i suppose we'll um we'll start talking about some uh strategies or some tools or or what is it that that you use uh and i've wrote something down here so i want to get your opinion i haven't even asked you this yet but there's a lot of studies going on now with um very controversial, like with psilocybin and with um, ketamine and stuff like that. What is your thoughts on on incorporating stuff like that into psychology and, and helping people? I'm an advocate. Mm. I actually, I'm a, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll explore this a little bit further about, I've um, been involved in transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is to... to oh, I've got that written down too. So yeah, let's, let's go on to that. Yeah, yeah. but that's it, sort of, it's a new innovative um, program whereby we stimulate a particular region of the brain that we know is a hot spot, your left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Just to on that note, that sounds very technical, Ryan. And one of need my, to dumb it down for people like me. Of, <laughs> well, one of my, my my intentions when I embarked on this this journey that is psychology was to debunk or not dumb down, but reframe. The, the, the terminology, because when I started some 25 years ago, you know, if you mentioned paranoid schizophrenia to an individual or obsessive compulsive disorder or clinical depression, people would automatically shut down because they're a little bit frightened of the terminology. Mm. And one of the things that I've wanted to challenge over the past, you know, quarter of a century is to break that down so people don't go oh my God, I don't understand, that's really heavy technical terminology. Mm. How do we how do we bring people in so they can understand the concept? You know? Definitely, that's one well, thing I, th I feel like I do quite well. Yeah, is, you do, yeah. Is I, I break things down to be that simple that and everyone understands. Yeah, and to look at difficult concepts as well. Yeah. But not to generate that fear and that mm. anxiety with the individual whereby, you know, and it sort of echoes what you were saying about conversation you had with your mum you know most people will be really frightened and shy away from that because they don't want to upset or they don't know how to handle it so that's lovely that you're trying to formulate an approach whereby these big issues can be addressed so back to the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex it's just a particular hotspot a region in the brain it's not anatomical it's we know that this region is is very active in glucose, oxygen, blood transference, yeah? And the stimulation thereof um, helps people with um, clinical depression, 
chronic disorders, but also there's a, there's a brain hack aspect to it. Mm. So I've been involved in this for about 18 months. I'm not going to get into it too much at the moment um, because I want to answer your question about psilocybin and um, ketamine. Um, without divulging too much, you know, there, there is a backstory with me in terms of psychotropic drugs, you know, not for a long time, but I have experienced it. And Yeah, I have, I have a well, and I've had one of my most... I suppose. Revelation. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, yeah, I mean... I'm an advocate for it as well. That's why I thought I'd ask what yeah, you're... I'm yeah. a big advocate, mate, and I think that it's been demonised. I think if people know about... And I really have to be careful that I'm not promoting drug abuse here or drug use so much. I think in the right setting, in the right context, you know, sort of MDMA with ecstasy... Um, comes about through a therapeutic process. That's how it comes to society mm. and to the mainstream, if you like. It was about um, allowing people to be more receptive through whatever tool. You know, you can talk about psychotherapy, which I'm very much into, and, and a talking cure. But anything that can promote and, and advance and move people forward. Mm, some sort of healing. Anything, then, then, yeah. you know, it, 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 it can be can be religion, it can be the universe, it can be yoga, it can be meditation, mindfulness, whatever it is. If it's helping, um, with the, the drug world, it, you know, the, there's always that danger of, of abuse. Mm. And, and that's always going to be the case, but that doesn't mean you should throw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater mm. either. You know, th there are tools and places and back to sort of, mental health as as a disease model the, the data suggests that there is a time and place and for some individuals medication does work but i don't think that that's a magic pill um mm. so back to your question yeah i'm an advocate if that works for you great i think it needs to be managed properly mm, definitely. i think there's a danger that the people who you know, I, I'm actually working with somebody at the moment who's got bipolar one, and that was triggered through using LSD. So I have to give that counter argument as well. Okay. Yeah. That, but I'm a big advocate. You know, yeah. Whether it's ketamine, um, TMS, which I'm a big a big player in, um, or psilocybin. I mean, it's big up on the Gold Coast of microdosing. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. it's not this sort of trippy experience, but and I think that needs to be explored more because it's great and it's a fungus. Yeah. And I don't want to get into natural remedies as such. However, it is out there and it's always been there. Yeah. You know, without... And, you know, I mean, like, there's ancient tribes that have used this oh, for healing yes. for thousands of years. So, you know, you, how can you discount something that they've used for, you know, for so long and well, I'll be really to, to, to throw that out there and, and so say... You know, you've got um, cannabinoid receptors in your brain that have been there through evolution. So, again, got to be careful. I'm not promoting too much use of cannabis. However, those receptors are there. That isn't me making it up. Yeah. You know? So that's been part of our evolution. And it's great we're on this topic. I, and I, I'm happy to get my teeth into it. <laughs> I'm a bit hesitant, Ryan, because... I know how things can you be. Sound, you sound like you like controversy, so I thought this would be a good well, one. Well, it can be very misconstrued. You've got to yeah. be careful what's on the record. But, you know, five 
five needs of human right the human condition you need water you need sustenance you need shelter you need sex you need altered state of consciousness right so our altered state of consciousness if we go back and I actually know through through someone else that you're very into this about the limbic system and the reptilian brain. Mm. Go back only a couple of hundred years, you and I would have been receiving an adrenaline rush out of foraging and getting through the day in terms of survival. Mm. That's gone. I often use the, 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 the mm. example of your food is now delivered, so the symbolism of you going out, even if to the supermarket mm. to get the provisions that's gone so some of those needs you could lose have, you kind of like lose res respect and respect like to the food kind of thing you, you lose the, you the meaning of it because it's just like well it's, it's here delivered it's, in, yeah in whatever you know now that they've got a new way of selling us groceries by mm. these sort of package this is your week supply and it arrives on the door there's no effort to go and source that food. Mm. You know, I know I like that. It, it might sound a little bit flippant about going to the supermarket, but there's an effort. It's symbolic. You go, you get, you take home. There's a process to it. Mm. You know, I, we could dig much, much deeper in terms of those. So back to the five needs. That last one about altered state of consciousness, where do we get that? We would have been driven by adrenaline to survive and that would have generated an altered state of consciousness that isn't even exploring sort of some of the the the, the plants the ayahuasca the, the the psilocybin the mushrooms the the cannabis whatever it is mm. we've always had that anyway but we would have had a survival hit and having to survive that's gone i think lots and and our brain isn't as developed and it isn't as modernistic as we actually think it is. No. You know, those, those no. their needs that humans have mm. to, to develop and to, and to be, you know, healthy. And, and they're all being just watered down, diminished. Mm. Uh, and who are we? You know, who, who, who do we want to be? Yeah, and this brings me to um, a point, like, we talk about happiness and everyone's goal is to be happy. But your brain does not give a fuck if you're happy, or right? Like that's not its that's not its goal. It doesn't care. Its goal is survival, right? And happiness has got nothing to do with survival back then. But now with su suicide and everything, like yeah. it is a matter of survival for a lot of people because if they're not happy, then they go down that route, that's which right, is yeah. quite tragic. So, but we haven't caught like our brain hasn't caught up with society and the way society is i think our brain like it takes a long time for evolution to change aspects of our body and our brain but yet society's just gone like this you know we can't catch up so it's our job to then you know happiness wasn't wouldn't have been a thing back in you know what i mean a thousand it years ago. Just been survival. yeah that's Getting right through the day and yeah like not being eaten by yeah, <laughs> that's a goal that's a win yeah exactly yeah. and that's all been Sort of, as I said, watered down, you know, the happiness trap. Mm. If you're not joyful and happy all the time, then somehow you're lacking. Mm. Rubbish, absolute rubbish, you know? And yeah. I, th I think that's a very valid point you raised, that lots of it was about survival, and that's what I was saying about an altered state of consciousness. You would have got that by just getting through the day yeah. and, and getting a feed and making sure your kids were fed. That would have given you 
that break from maybe the sort of mundane and the, the mm. routine. Oh, great! You know, there's an achievement. We've we've you know we've been successful in this aspect of the day. Yeah, and that would have given you a lift. Mm. It's gone. You know, yeah. It's, uh, everything's immediate gratification. That's one of my key yeah. points. Big Delayed time. gratification, it's like, you know, you're in great shape, mate, but that took time. And the discipline and the effort and the, the input to go to the gym, you know, you're not going to look great and, and be super fit overnight. Nah. And so that ability to delay gratification is a huge missing part. The best things take time and effort and I see, and, and and it isn't just a youth thing. I think it's a, it, it's a broad stroke across society per se. The everyone wants it yesterday, and, mm. and the rubbish stuff you can get quickly. You know, mm. the, the 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 thing with any substance takes time, takes effort. To, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you've got to invest, and then that spills over to you know you invest in your physical well being and your your psychological well being, then you invest in your career or your work or your children or whatever it is but it's it's a process mm. and uh, that sounds a bit cliche but it is a process and and i think we're losing that brian i really do mate i think that you know everyone wants it now yeah um, that's know, what the credit card's for right that's what the now credit card <laughs> and so everyone's in debt and yeah. the system perpetuates that well they make money off it you yeah, know which really interesting money, yeah, yeah. Well, you go and you get your you know, which is better, mate? Is it is it a cheeseburger or is it a beautiful curry? I love my curries or, or a beautifully put together meal, whatever it is. But the cheeseburger's there immediately. Yeah. Whereas doesn't take that, no, yeah, nothing, that, that yeah. beautiful nutritional and the effort and the investment that you put into it, that all tastes better. Mm. You know? However, society is yeah. immediate. Food made with love, isn't that the old saying? Exactly. It's made with love, it tastes yeah. different. It yeah. tastes better, yeah. So there's a good study done on, I think they did it with kids that were four years old and they gave them a lolly and they said, oh, if you can wait. You wait, yeah. You know, and the kids that could wait, when they follow them through life. Like, happier. Yeah, happier. And they were way more successful because they understood Sorry. the concept of, well, if I, I wait a bit more, time. then I can actually have more later. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, so I thought that was... Um, yeah, it's a great study, mate. Yeah, you know, this, and that's brilliant that you... you present to that because there's lots of great psychology stuff that that sort of isn't really in the you know in the mainstream and if you can draw but that delayed gratification immediate gratification is a major problem mm. right globally you know we want it now yeah yeah and like like you said society pushes us to do that yeah, because then we it, yeah. you know i mean so then we you know it's about them making the money you know i mean like yeah well, well i could you know i, I think that there's this podcast's really been very positive. Um, and to be controversial, I could really slag society off if I wanted <laughs> to. And the disease model, yeah, and the yeah. blame game, and it's someone else's problem. And, you know, what death, what, what did John Lennon say? Death and taxes, you know, that's what's happening. And mm. I, I learned a long time ago about, and I don't want to be too morbid, but if you look at the headstone on your grave, so you're born in 1975 and you die in 2032 and you are the dash in between those two dates. How do you want that dash to be? Mm. And I think that's a lovely approach to 
because that's what it's about. You know? Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you want it to? I, be... I've done a pro, I've done an exercise that does something very similar to that. Is that I'll... about writing your obituary and how are you going to be remembered? Mm. Or yeah. and then you write your chapters to now, and then you write the chapters that you want to be, you know what I mean? And then you'd like, and it really gets you thinking about, um, I suppose, getting you out of the the day-to-day, you know what I mean? And go, well, what do I actually want the rest of my life to learn? Because you've basically, you are the artist, you are the the person to... And that's what I was saying about tabula rasa, the blank canvas. Mm. You're painting the picture for you. And I think that's really powerful. Mm. It's lovely that you touched on that. but as a as an exercise, and we sort of look at different techniques. Maybe um, the journaling and writing it down. There's another p- big piece of research that was done in the '60s that they had two groups, um, and one group, and the, the the youngsters, one group wrote actually physically wrote down what it was they wanted to achieve and where they wanted to get to in their lives, and the other group didn't. They just verbalized it, mm. articulated it. The people who actually went through the process of writing it down were the ones that achieved their goals yeah, and aims. Yeah, and uh, so that investment and, and taking the time, I'm a big advocate of journaling. Yeah. And it's not for anybody else to read, diarising. It's, no. it's not to give to your psych or to, for anyone else to look at. It's just a cathartic process of you almost not doing the running around mm. and the head miles all the time. It allows you to, I think, for me, anyway, I look, I'm not doing any journey. I know I should be, and it's something that I go don't through. Don't Yeah, okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. It's something that I've done in the past, and it's worked really well. At the moment, I'm not doing it, mm. and I will be doing it okay, again right. in the future. Okay, right, now, I don't want to be your shrink, but why <laughs> aren't you doing that? Because I could turn that into a form. Why aren't you doing what you know is good for you? Go on. Well, why? It's a bit heavy. I put you in the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But why wouldn't you? You obviously go to the gym mm. because that's healthy and beneficial. Yeah, you uh, wouldn't eat chips. I believe all day, every day. Why yeah, don't you do your journaling. And this is totally an excuse. Um, I think I'm a little bit time poor, especially when I'm away at work. Yeah, and because I work on a week and then off a week. Um. Yeah, it disrupts like a routine. When I was journaling a lot, I was working at here at home and mm-hmm. I was sort of had a constant routine. So because I work away, I've got a certain routine. And when I come home, a certain routine, it kind of muddles that. And like I said, basically it's an excuse. But yeah. Thank you for listening to the Neuronovata podcast. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe. Also, if you'd like to know a bit more about us, uh, jump on Instagram, Neuronovana underscore and Neuronovana on Facebook. Also, if you'd like to check out our services and if we can help you in any way, jump on our website, neuronirvana.com.au.